You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 17. We're going to read together verses 20 through the end of the chapter. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, and that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we are... It is our delight to delight in Your Word. It is our delight to have it. We thank You that You have made Yourself known to us through Scripture and that we are not dependent upon our own reason or our own mental abilities to apprehend the truth, but that You are the One who has revealed the truth to us in the pages of Scripture and then by Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is truth incarnate. We pray that Your Word would be honored here amongst Your people as it is preached and that through the preaching of Your Word, as we hear it and as we meditate upon it, that You would sanctify us by that truth and that you would incline the hearts of your people toward you in love and affection for you, our great God and Savior. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we are at John chapter 17. We're going to be finishing uh, John chapter 17 today. It's going to seem like a whirlwind because we're going three whole verses, 24 through all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 26. And in many ways, we get to the end of the 17th chapter. We have reached something, in many ways, a summit in the Gospel of John. And I say that because there are a number of themes which I mentioned at the beginning of chapter 17, which we have been tracing all the way through this gospel. And then we get to chapter 17, and all of these themes kind of come together in many ways. Um, They are mentioned in John 17. They're prayed about in John chapter 17. But then we get to the end of chapter 17, and all of a lot of the themes from chapter 17 are kind of condensed in the last two verses, verses 25 and 26. And we've also reached the summit in the Gospel of John in this sense that we have come to the point where we're now at the end of the teaching section of John's Gospel. And it's it's 17 long chapters of teaching. And it is there are some extended discourses and some extended teaching times where Jesus is with his disciples. And we have just finished up, we're going to finish up today, the longest of those teaching times with the disciples, the upper room or the farewell discourse, and then his prayer for them in chapter 17. And then we get into chapter 18, and, and comparatively speaking, Compared with the first 18 chapter, 17 chapters, the last four, Jesus speaks very little, comparatively speaking. Uh, most of what we have in the last half or the last four verses, uh, chapters of this book are, are narrative about the things that happen. And there is a, we get to the end of chapter 17 and it's like the teaching is done. And now we move on to what John has been building toward for 17 chapters. And that is the passion of our Lord, the crucifixion the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus are the last four chapters. So we get to the end of 17, and we've kind of reached the the peak, as it were, of the teaching. 
um, the peak of the stated and taught theology of the book. And then when we start next week with an introduction to the last four chapters, uh, we're going to notice that, that the whole tone of the of the gospel changes a little bit. Uh, it seems as if the, the themes that are, that are kind of mentioned in the first 17 verses or 17 chapters kind of come to a head at the end here. And then they're sort of fleshed out in the last four chapters. And there is a lot of new things that happen in the last four chapters. And everything sort of seems to take something of a different direction, at least a different direction from what we've seen. And it wasn't a different direction as far as Jesus was concerned, because he's been teaching the disciples and telling them that this is what they should expect. And he's been preparing them for this all the way up until this point. In verse in chapters 13 through 16, we got the instruction that the Lord gave to his people before he left them in the world. Chapter 17 has been his intercession for his people as he leaves them in the world. And in chapter 18 and 19, because I like alliteration, I would choose the word imputation. It is the imputation which he has provided for his people through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So we have instruction for those chapters. We have uh, intercession, him praying for his people, and then him providing for them the righteousness which he would impute to them through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So now today we're going to finish up these uh, last few verses. And, and some, a lot of the themes that we have noticed in the 17th chapter, we have already mined them in previous verses. So that we're not going to, we're not going to work our way slowly through this sort of packed uh, thematic section these last two verses because earlier in chapter 17 we've gone slow enough to take each one of these and sort of hold them up and look at them and and really expound upon them in lengthy detail so we're going to be able to rush through I shouldn't say rush through that's the wrong word we're going to be able to handle verses 25 and 26 for what they really are which is really a summary of the first part of the prayer the whole first uh, 24 verses of the prayer You'll notice in verse 24, it is the last request that Jesus gives uh, for his disciples. It's the last thing he asks of them, that they may see his glory. And he prays to the Father in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. And that is his last prayer for them in this chapter. And we've noticed that really the, 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 the prayer for Jesus, for his people, could be divided into four things. He's prayed four things for them. For their preservation, that they would be kept. That the Father who has given them to him would also keep them, keep them from evil, keep them from the world, keep them from the evil one. He has prayed for their sanctification, that they would be made holy and set apart for him. He has prayed for their unification, that they may all be one. And now he prays for their glorification. He prays for their preservation, their sanctification, their unification, and now their glorification. So we're going to see today that the glorification, our glorification in Christ, is the fulfillment of his will, verse 24, and that it is the result of his work, verses 25 and 26. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus doesn't really pray anything new for the disciples. He really describes to the Father, it is a statement of what he has done on behalf of his people that the Father had sent him to do. And there is a a collection of themes in these last couple of verses that I just want you to notice. We've already looked at them in chapter 17. Let me give you a couple of them. Jesus mentions in verse 24, those whom the Father had given to him. We've already seen that earlier in the in the chapter, particularly verse two, where he first refers to those in the father given to him. In verse five, he mentions the glory of the father and the glory that the father had given to him. In verse five, he mentions the foundation of the world. That's mentioned also in verse uh, 24. He mentions in verse one, he calls God father. And here he ends with the petition again, calling God father. He speaks of knowing God in verse three. And here at the end of the epistle or at the end of this chapter, he mentions knowing God again. I have made your name known to them. And he mentions being sent in verse three and he mentions the name of God in verse six. So those first six verses kind of introduce all the themes. There's a lot packed into that. We worked our way through them slowly. 
And now we get to the end of this prayer, and it's as if Jesus is referring back to this entire first 24 verses, and He is summing it all up again in the last two verses. And so we're going to treat those last two verses as a summary. Let's look first at verse 24. Verse 24, we see that our glorification is the fulfillment of His will for us. Verse 24, I'm going to read the verse in full. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this verse, and I think it is one of the best sermons from Spurgeon I have ever read. The sermon was titled, Why They Leave Us. And it was preached six years before Spurgeon died in 1886. He died in 1892, January 31st, 1892. So six years before Spurgeon uh, died, he preached a sermon on this text. And the introduction to the sermon says that the sermon was occasioned by a number of death, deaths that were close to Spurgeon. Of people that he worked with, people that he knew, people who were in ministry, members of his church who seemed to suddenly be dying and, and dying a lot of them. I don't know if you've noticed it, but... The older you get, the more people around you start dying. Have you noticed that? And the, and the older you get, the more frequent it seems to be for some reason. Well, Spurgeon observed the very same thing. And he made reference in that sermon to a lot of the graves freshly dug, as Spurgeon did. And he said, why do we see all of these graves freshly dug? And he turned in that funeral sermon to verse 24, and he says, this removes the mystery. Because the Savior desires His people be with Him. Why is it that Christians die? Verse 24, because the Savior wills that His people be with Him. And so Spurgeon likened it to cords of love which He has wrapped around His people and He draws them to Him out of Himself, out of this life. And then Spurgeon challenged his audience. He said, would you break asunder those cords of love and keep the Savior from having His people with Him? Or would you gladly wish that they would hasten even quicker to be by the Savior's side? It's a phenomenal message, uh, just on verse 24. And uh, Spurgeon makes much out of this phrase, it is the Savior's will that His people be with Him. And listen, if it is Jesus' will that you and I be with Him, it will most certainly come to pass. And that is the promise of Scripture, that there is nothing on heaven and there is, in heaven and there is nothing on earth that can keep that from happening if that is what the Savior has willed. So look at verse 24. Jesus says, it is my desire or my will. The King James translates it will, and the word speaks of, of a strong desire uh, and not so much a hope or a wish like we might say, well, I wish that this might happen. But it actually, in, in this context, the way the Lord uses it here, the word actually expresses a strong will that he has. He wills for his people, those whom the Father has given to him, that they be with him. And then notice how Jesus describes his people. Again, we see in John chapter 17, verse 24, he speaks of they also whom you have given me. Now, who are the they also? Who are the they also? You remember back in chapter, uh, or sorry, verse uh, 7, and following that he was describing prayers, he was praying for there, the 11 disciples. And then beginning in verse 20, there is this intentional opening up of the scope of his prayer and his intention from the 11 to whom in verse 20. All of those who will believe on me through their testimony, the testimony of the apostles. So who does that refer to? That again is all of us. And so the they also refers to the same extended group of people whom he, he mentions in verse 20, all of those who would believe upon the Savior because of the testimony of the apostles. They, those, we, are the they also. And so here we have all of us being described as those who have been given by the, to the, by the Father to the Son. And this would, of course, do away with the entire argument that when Jesus says that there is a group of people given to Him by the Father, that He is only referring to the apostles. 
We're only referring to the disciples. We're only referring to a small group of people, but that this is not all Christians. And this puts the lie to that false doctrine because here we have Jesus describing us as those whom the Father has given to him as well. And, and we've treated all the references to that in the Gospel of John. There's a bunch of them in chapter 6 as referring to us as well as to the 11 disciples. So it is all of us whom the Lord desires that we be with him and behold his glory. And that we be with him, that is the essence of heaven. When Jesus says, I desire that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am, he is saying that he desires all of them, not just the 11 apostles, not just these men whom he was, he was with that night and he was leaving that night. He desires that this entire company of people whom the Father has given to the Son to save, that they all be with him. In Scripture, this is called the elect. We call them the elect because the Father chose them out of the mass of humanity as a gift to give to his Son. These are the ones for whom the Lord prays. And notice that the prayer here is specifically for the ones whom the Savior has been given by the Father. It is not for the whole world. He said in verse 9, I do not pray these things for the world. He's not addressing here the mass of, of, of goats that do not believe in him. He's not speaking here or praying about those people whom the Father has not given to him in a saving sense. He is speaking specifically of those whom the Father chose and who has given to him as a love gift. And he is praying for them specifically. Spurgeon said this, This was not a universal prayer. It was a prayer including with it within it a certain class and portion of mankind who are designated as those whom the Father had given him. Now we are taught to believe that God the Father did from the before the foundation of the world give unto his Son Jesus Christ a number whom no man can number, who were to be the reward of his death, the purchase of the travail of his soul, who were to be infallibly brought unto everlasting glory by the merits of his passion and the power of his resurrection. These are the people that are here referred to. Sometimes in Scripture they are called the elect because when the Father gave them to Christ, He chose them out from among men. At other times they are called the beloved because God's love was set upon them from of old. End quote. These are the ones for whom the Savior longs they are the, to be with Him. They are the delight of His soul. They are the objects of His love. They are the reward for His suffering. These are the ones whom the Father has given to the Son. They are a love gift from the Father to the Son, which explains why it is that the Son desires to be with them and that they may see His glory. It explains why it is that he would say, I will that they be with me. This is a marvelous thing to me, and I hope it is to you as well. That the Savior would desire that I be with him. Doesn't that blow your mind? It should. It's no wonder that I should desire to be with him. He's lovely and beautiful in every way. His character is glorious. He is a, he is a jewel of heaven. He is a precious Savior. He is a great God. In his hand are, are pleasures and delights forevermore. It is no wonder that we should delight to be with him but that He should actually desire our presence for all of eternity. Why is that? I believe it is because we have been given to Him by the Father. That is the reason why He desires our company. Not because you are desirable to be with, hard as that may seem to believe. It's not that I am desirable company. It's not that I'm any more desirable to spend eternity with than all of the mass of humanity who will be punished everlastingly away from the presence of Christ and away from the goodness of His glory. It's not because I am any more worthy of that or any more notable than they are. Why is it? It is because the Father loved us and gave us to His Son. What is the, what is the reason for the Father's gift to the Son? What is it that caused the Father to choose me or you if you're in Christ as opposed to all of the rest of humanity? We are not told what the foundation of that choice was other than to say that it was according to His own purpose and goodness and glory in eternity past. It was God's own sovereign pleasure, His own eternal purposes. Why me and not someone else? 
Scripture doesn't answer that question other than that God loved us and set his affection on us and he chose us and in choosing us as the choosing us as the objects of his love. He gave us to his son to save and to redeem. And the son willingly and gladly received that gift of a bride from the father and agreed to come into history and to lay down his life to save and deliver his sheep, his people, his bride, that special gift that the father gave to him. And because we have been given to him by the father, whom he loves everlastingly and infinitely, and he is loved by everlasting and infinitely because we are that gift. That is why the Savior desires that we be with him. Not because you're desirable, but because God, according to his own eternal purpose and goodness and glory, chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world and gave you to his son. And so the son looks at that gift as undesirable as we might be, and he gladly receives it and desires that we be with him. Why? Because we are his bride given to us by the father who loves him and the father whom he loves. That is why he desires to be with us. And he desires to be with us so that we may see his glory. Look at verse 24. He wants us to be with him where he is so that we may see his glory. This is the delight of heaven. The delight of heaven is not, is not just freedom from sin and freedom from back pain and freedom from suffering and freedom from disease and freedom from all of those things. As delightful as that is, that's not the delight of heaven. The delight of heaven is the presence of Christ. That's what makes heaven heaven. That's what makes heaven so delightful is to be with Christ where he is. He's the joy of heaven. He's the treasure of heaven. He's the epitome, the centrality of heaven. Heaven is all about him. It is all about his presence, about his glory, about his person, and, and reveling in that and enjoying that and delighting in him. And this is what the saints have longed for for ages. Even in the Old Testament, we hear David expressing that. Psalm 16, verse 11, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever. Just being in God's presence, there are, there are pleasures in God's person and delights and joy in Him that we will enjoy for all of eternity. Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me ask you a question. If you could have heaven without Christ there, would you enjoy it? If you could have heaven without Christ there, would you enjoy it? I hope that you would, be, I hope that you would say no. That you couldn't. Because after all, that is, the, that is the sum and substance of what heaven is about. That is the joy and delight of heaven. It is His presence that brings us joy and delight. Samuel Rutherford said this, O oh my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without Thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have Thee still, it would be a heaven to me, for Thou art all the heaven I want. Martin Luther said this, I had rather be in hell with Christ than in heaven without Him. And Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven, which I highly recommend to you, it's a theology of heaven, not that I went and visited heaven, well, not one of those books, but an actual theology of heaven and what Scripture says about it. Randy Alcorn writes this, A place without Christ cannot be, a place with Christ cannot be hell, only heaven, and a place without Christ cannot be heaven, only hell. End quote. Now that's the, that's the joy and the light of heaven. That's what we look forward to, is enjoying with Christ, enjoying heaven and eternity with Christ and being with Him in glory and seeing His glory. What does the Lord Jesus want how does the Lord Jesus describe heaven in this verse? Do you see it? That they may be with me where I am and what? See my glory. See my glory. Now that means more than just observing something. It means more than just looking upon something and seeing it with the eye. It has in it the idea of participating in something with someone. Have you ever been at a location or, or been with somebody or sorry, been at a location all by yourself? And said to yourself, well, I wish my wife could see this. 
or I wish my husband could see this, or I wish my kids could be here with me, right, to enjoy this as well. It's that idea, not just of looking upon it, but looking upon it in a way that you participate in it. That's the idea here but behind seeing his glory. If you think that heaven is going to, that if you think that Christ did all that he did for us, so that we can stand on streets of gold and just stare into a bright light, and say, wow, that's bright. Isn't that bright? That's great. And 10,000 years later, that's bright, isn't it? That's bright. That's great. Look at that glory. If you think that that's what Christ did, if you think that that's what He has purchased for you, 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 you don't understand what heaven is. Seeing His glory, there's, there's going to be something when we are recreated and we have new bodies and new eyes and new hearts and new affections and we are in a glorified state, to look upon that glory is to delight in it in some way. There is going to be something about beholding the glory of Christ, the glory that the Father has given to him, that will create in us this immeasurable delight and joy that you and I only get glimpses of here in this life. To look on it now would consume us. It would destroy us. But to look on it in a glorified state, in glorified bodies, without the imperfections that we have now, to, to behold it is going to be to delight in it. And there's going to be some sense in which we enjoy that glory and we participate in that glory and we are active in that glory and we do things in it and we, and we experience the delights of it and the pleasures of it that our mind cannot comprehend even now. We get a glimpse of it. What is it going to be like exactly? I mean, nobody can explain that other than to say that when Jesus describes our participation with him in heaven, he doesn't just say that we're going to hang out with him, but the essence of it will be to see His glory. And that will be for us eternal and infinite delight and joy. There's going to be something about that that marvels the heart and that causes us to delight in ways that we can't even imagine. Just to look at it. Just to look at it. Because in, in that sense, to look at it is to participate in it and to enjoy it and to delight in it. There's going to be something about that that del delights our hearts. We are going to have glorified bodies. We are going to be in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And no impure thing will enter it. There will be streets. There will be cities. There will be nations. There will be people. There will be trees and rivers and all of that. A new creation. A new creation upon which newly resurrected, eternal and infinite and imperishable bodies will exist for all of eternity. And we will, in that environment, look upon that glory and participate in it. And that is going to be the essence of our glory and our delight in the eternal heavens. In the, in the eternal new earth. And to be with Him where He is and to look upon His glory, that is the essence and substance of heaven. That's how Jesus describes it. And all we can do now is just kind of imagine what that would be like. But I can tell you this, it's not going to be us just look, wonder, looking at a bright light and, and marveling over the brightness of a the light. There's going to be something in us that we delight in. As God pours out upon us wave after wave for all of eternity, the delights and pleasures which He has planned for us in that environment. Notice verse 24 takes us from eternity past to eternity future. Notice that verse 24 mentions the glory which he had and the being loved before the foundation of the world. Um, notice that verse 24 mentions that, what existed before the foundation of the world, and also gives us a glimpse of what is going to happen in eternity future. So in verse 24, we go from eternity past to eternity future, which has been the scope of this entire prayer in John chapter 17. And the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world, and this is the will of the Father. If this is the will of the Father, or if this is the will of the Son, that we be with Him, then we can be assured that this is also the will of the Father for us as well. It is the will of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 
that we be with him where he is, and that for all of eternity. And that should thrill our hearts. Because as I said at the beginning, if that is God's will for us, then it cannot help but come to pass. It must come to pass. God's will for his people will not be thwarted. So that is our glorification as the fulfillment of his will. Now look down at verses 25 and 26. Our glorification is also the result of his work for us. And in verse 25 and 26, he describes here for us the work that he has done. Verse 25, O righteous Father. That's kind of an odd, uh, well, at least odd in terms of how Jesus normally addresses the Father in the Gospel of John. He, he calls the Father, Father, in verse 1. He calls him Holy Father in verse 11. He calls him Righteous Father here in verse 25. And there's no other passage in any of the Gospels where Jesus refers to God as the Righteous Father. In fact, him using any adjectives of God in addressing him as Father is very odd. Just calling him Father was his typical address. In verse 11, he calls him Holy Father. We noted in verse 11 how odd that was that Jesus would add any kind of a qualifier to describe God. Uh, it is the same in verse 25. To call him Righteous Father is something of an, of an odd address because it is out of character with how Jesus normally spoke of the Father. And since it's out of character with how Jesus normally spoke of the Father and addressed the Father, it makes us ask, why in this context then would he add that adjective there and describe the Father as righteous? Why would, why would the Lord do that? I think there's two things going on. I think, first of all, Jesus is intending to contrast the nature of God and his righteousness with the world. Now, if we understand anything about God, if the disciples knew anything about God, if we can see anything about God in Scripture, it is this, that he is righteous. And he is blazing righteous. And he is infinitely righteous. And he is perfectly righteous. But if there's anything that we understand about the world, it is what? They are not righteous, are they? Is anybody confused about that? That the world, the world system and the unbelievers around us, that they are not righteous? This would explain why he says of the world in verse 25 that the world has not known you. And so this, I, this, this qualifier, this adjective of describing the Father as righteous, contrasts the nature and character of the Father in his righteousness, who cannot be known by the world because the world is unrighteous. And the world in its unrighteousness cannot know that one true God. Now the world, unbelievers, do know that God exists. They do. And they understand the invisible attributes of God that are revealed in creation. But Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1, the world suppresses that truth and unrighteousness. They hold it down. There's no such thing as a true atheist. There's no such thing as a true atheist. Scripture says every atheist knows there's a God and believes there is a God, but he denies what he thinks, what he knows to be true, and he suppresses that truth in unrighteousness so that he can live an unholy and unrighteous life and deny what is obvious from creation. It is so obvious that the Bible doesn't even assert that God exists. It, it doesn't even try and argue that God exists. It just demands that we believe it because it is so obvious from creation. And so the world knows that God exists, but the world does not know God in his righteousness until he is revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first reason why I think Jesus uses that qualifier is to contrast the nature of God in his righteousness with the world in its unrighteousness. There's a second reason. Why do you think it is that at the end of this prayer, before what is about to happen, that the Lord would remind us, remind the disciples by, of, of the fact that God is righteous, that everything God does is righteous, everything he has planned is righteous, everything he has purposed is righteous, everything he allows to happen, everything he causes to happen, everything he is involved in is in itself right and righteous. Why would the Lord at this point remind us of that? What is about to happen? The betrayal of Judas, he is revealed as the traitor. The denial of Peter and the crucifixion of the Messiah. And as we're reading through the next few chapters, 
we would be tempted if we didn't know better to ask ourselves, how is it that a righteous God who is right in all that he does can allow something like this to happen? And it is almost as if the Lord is reminding his disciples, while Judas and the Roman authorities, Jewish authorities, were on their way to the garden, that Jesus would remind his disciples all that the Father does, all that the Father plans, everything he has purposed is entirely righteous. He is the righteous one. And then as all of the events of that evening would unfold, we might suspect that God is unrighteous in his dealings, when in fact the cross itself is the demonstration and the vindication of the righteousness of God. So I think that's why he reminds us that God is righteous. Sort of to prepare us for what we are about to read. And we look at the cross and we look at the dealings there and what happened there, and we would say, God is righteous, and in the cross his righteousness is vindicated. But the world does not know him. Jesus knows him, verse 25. Yet I have known you because the righteous one knows the righteous one. And these, that is the disciples that were there, have known that you sent me. And they had already confessed that. They knew that. They had been brought to realize that because of watching Jesus and seeing him and hearing him teach. They had come to understand that he was the son of God sent by the father for the salvation of sinners. They had understood all of that, that he was the Messiah and that the father had sent him. Verse 26 And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. So what is the work that the Father sent the Son to do? To come into the world and to make known the name of the Father. And here's Jesus again saying what he had said back in verses 4, 5, and 6, that he had completed the work that the Father gave him to do and that he had made known and manifested the name of the Father to the disciples. And he is saying concerning them, they have come to understand that you have sent me. And how is it that the disciples understood who Jesus was and that he was sent by the Father? Was it because of some insight that they had, some special spiritual ability, some mental acumen that they possessed? Was it any of that? Or was it the fact that Jesus had revealed these things to them? I told you earlier, back in John chapter 17, that if you and I understand anything about God, it is due solely to the fact that Jesus Christ has willed to reveal the Father to us. Because he reveals to whomever he wills, The Father. And nobody can know the Father except the Son. And nobody knows the Son except the Father. And nobody knows the Father except the Son and any to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So why did the apostles know that the Father had sent the Son into the world to save sinners? Because Christ had revealed that. Why do you know that Christ is Lord of heaven and earth? And why have you embraced Him? Because He has willed to reveal that to you. And He has willed to open your eyes and He has willed to make that known to you and to open your mind and to cause you to be born again. That is His will and that's why you know what you know. And so he has manifested the name of the Father to us. He has made that known. He made it known to the disciples. And here's the path of Christian discipleship. He continues to make that known to his people. And just as he made it known to the eleven, Jesus continues to make that known to all of his people as he continually reveals himself and calls out of the world those whom the Father has given to him. You know, wonder wonder why it is that we have not been that we have not reached the end of God's patience and long suffering yet. It is because there are still unbelievers out there who are his people whom the Lord knows the Father has given to him, and he is calling them to himself. And when every last one of those sheep has been gathered in, it's all over. That's it. The Lord will return, as we saw described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, with his angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution on those who do not know him and will not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But until that has happened, until all of his people, his elect, his chosen ones, have been gathered in, God is patient, His long-suffering, he is not willing that any of those whom he has been given to him will perish. But instead, he is long-suffering, willing that all of them should be brought to repentance. When they are, then the Lord is done. Then we will go home to be with him 
in great glory. And we will see him as he is, and we will be with him, and we will see him for who he is. First John 3, verse 1, brings all of this all of these themes together, just like we have seen here at the end of chapter 17. John writes in his epistle, chapter 3, verse 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it does not know him. See how John ties all of that together? The love that we have, the love that the Father has given to us. And we see it here at the end of verse 26, that Jesus would make himself known in the name of the Father known, so that the love with which he loved me may be in them and I in them. We've already looked at this idea of Jesus indwelling his people and his people being in him. And we've looked at the idea of of this love that we have, the love that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for his people because the Father has loved his people and the love that his people have for us and the love that we have for each other. All of that love, all of the inter-Trinitarian love and all of that inter-Trinitarian love that is shared with us has been purchased for us by the death of Christ. So let me tie all of this together now in a way that will bring us to the Lord's Supper. We have been reminded this morning that the Father is righteous and that we in and of ourselves are not. So we've also been reminded that the Father loves us and that he has set his affections on us and that he has chose us and he has brought us to his Son. How is it that God, the righteous one, has taken care of the problem that we have, which is our unrighteousness? It comes through the work that Christ did in chapter 18, chapter 19 of John, his death on the cross. God's law requires that his righteousness be satisfied. God's law is righteous and God is righteous and we are not and we are sinners. And God cannot just simply turn a blind eye to justice and he cannot turn a blind eye to our wickedness and to our corruption. Those sin issues must be dealt with and all sin must be paid for and accounted for. And so God sent his son into the world to die on a cross to pay the penalty for sinners who will believe upon him. And that sacrifice that Christ made on the cross is sufficient to pay the penalty for any and all who will believe. And the gospel is made open to you if you've never trusted Christ for salvation. I would beg of you on behalf of God in Christ, be reconciled to God through the death of his son. There is only one way for your sins to be forgiven, and that is through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here this morning, you're trusting in anything else. You are trusting in a mirage. You are trusting in a fiction for your salvation. All of us will stand before God and give an account. All of us will stand before him. Those whom he has loved and those who have repented of their sin, repented from their sin and trusted in Christ and his death on the cross will stand before him forgiven, sinless, blameless, because all of our sin has been poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Those who refuse to repent will stand before him without a sin bearer. So as we partake of communion, I would encourage you, if you have never trusted Christ for salvation, do not partake of the elements of the bread and the cup. To do so is to eat and drink judgment to yourself. That's the warning of Scripture. And that is because this is not for you as an unbeliever. This is not for you. Just as that atonement and that sacrifice was made for those who have trusted in it, this is not for you. You must be a partaker in the Lord Jesus Christ before you should be a partaker in this. So repent of your sin, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in him and what he has done, and God will be gracious to you. He will grant you eternal life. He will forgive you of your sins, and he will take you to be with him. That is his promise. But you also have the promise that we read in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2, that if you do not repent, God's promise to you is that when he returns, he will pour out upon you eternal wrath and affliction 
to all those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and all those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the warning. And as believers, we take this seriously because we understand that what Christ did to reconcile us to the Father and what he did in offering a sacrifice for him, a sacrifice that was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin, was to offer his body and to pour out his blood as an atonement for all the sins of all of his people. And so we glory in that. We rejoice in that. And our participation in the Lord's Supper, there's nothing magical about it, but our participation in the Lord's Supper is a participation in a reminder of that tremendous sacrifice which has purchased our redemption and our salvation. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.